I would say, you know, sometimes people ask me the question, like, what have you learned over, you know, all these years of working with kids? And really, I think one of my biggest takeaways is that pretty much adults need exactly what kids need. <laughs> um, and, you know, every time I teach um, children's programming, every time I teach a training, every time I teach a workshop on how to share yoga and mindfulness with kids, what I get from the adults all the time is, oh God, this is exactly what I need. And that's oftentimes because we didn't get those things as a kid and we're still trying to, um, you know, put those pieces together for ourselves. That was Jennifer Harper. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Seeker and Sage. Danny Pomplun here, and I am your host. Today is episode 155. Jennifer Harper is on the show, and we are tossing out a very big buzzword. Drumroll trauma. Yeah, we've all got it, especially myself. Um, listen, I'm no, uh, I'm no one to be shy about, uh, you know, my trauma and my story and all of that. And, uh, so I think it's important to have these conversations on the show first. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Do you go by Jen or Jennifer? Usually Jen. Jen works. Okay. You know what? We're going to go to, we're going to, we're going to go to Jen then. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) How are you? I know we were kind of just catching up before, as I do with most people. I have to, I have to remind myself to not get excited and start babbling a ton beforehand because then it <laughs> takes away from all the yummy stuff that we're going to say on the show. But how's it going? I know you. We were talking about mom life just a second ago. Yeah, it's it's going. I mean, everything's pretty much fine, but we're living in a pandemic, and my kids don't have school. We actually pulled out of our remote school option a couple of months ago and just went full on homeschool. So, mm. you know, I'm, I'm running a business and homeschooling my kids. So things are very full, but I, I really can't complain. Everyone's healthy and, and that's the most important thing. So you're, you're really bored with a lot of free time. Oh yeah, yeah. COVID life is super boring for me. <laughs> no, I like see people being bored, but to be honest, I can't remember a time in in fifteen years that I've been bored. You know, I, I have my oldest daughter's eight. Um, I have an eight year old and a three year old, and you know, all sorts of other family things. Um, but I also started my own business like sixteen years ago, and yeah. you know, there's never been. There's never really been much space for boredom ever since then. There's always something to do. And usually that something is pretty interesting and compelling and, and creative. So I'm lucky. It's not just like I'm I'm not bored because I'm so busy. It's also like life's pretty interesting. And it's pretty cool. I mean, what we get to do and and you in a different capacity, I, I you know, I work obviously with more adults than I ever do kids, although I do do kids stuff sometimes. Haven't in a while, but it's, but I, I definitely do. But we, it's, I would say, I mean, for my experience of, of the work that we get to do is pretty incredible. It really is. It's, it's great, especially right now when things are so hard in the world, it's been very helpful to feel useful. Um, and it's something that's really helped me get through a lot of the last year, um, you know, almost a year of this very strange time we're living through is just feeling like I can actually do something that's helpful. Um, it's yeah. been kind of a lifeline. You know, I, I think about, I mean, I've said this a lot on the show. I've talked so much about this and just about mental health and all the, all the things I've really 
to, I mean, the whole pandemic situation and the, and because of the way it has changed life has, has for me, it actually dropped a big layer of, of, of boundary, I guess, you know, where I'm a bit more real and a bit more raw. Not that I wasn't before, but mm-hmm. there's just other, this other, like, look, we're all going through it and we're all starting to see the human. And I think that's what we really need is to see the, the human. And, and, you know, I think a lot about adults, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever, whatever those are. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot about adults struggling through, you know, pandemic and through pandemic life and, you know, my own personal struggles with it. And, you know, I see my friends and, you know, I start to see how the healers have a hard time holding space. You know, when, when therapists are saying they're not taking on more clients or that they need to take breaks because it's, it's getting intense. And we're supposed to be the ones that have like somewhat of the emotional intelligence to, you know, deal with adulting, yeah. I guess, per se, yeah. you know, <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't really experienced, you know, I, I, I am child free and I don't really have a ton of kids in my life all the time, except when I visit sister, my sister, or a couple of friends, you know, but like, what are the kids going through right now? Yeah, it's, it's really challenging. Um, and the kids are going through a lot of what we're going through in the sense that so much of what's predictable for them has been stripped away. Um, and it's funny you talk about therapists being overwhelmed and, you know, the the adults struggling with the adulting. You know, being an adult doesn't make us any less susceptible to like the basic you know, operations of a nervous system. (laughs) And if the nervous system and the human brain are so overwhelmed with input um, that, you know, that, that the brain can't keep up with the processing, then, then there's overwhelm. And one of the things that helps us, um, one of the things that helps our nervous system not get so overwhelmed is these sort of touch points of routine and predictability. You know, the more we can predict um, the more we have our routines, the easier it is for the mind to get through the day. Um, and the more we can kind of use our, our mental strength to focus on the things that really need to be focused on. Right now, so little is predictable. Things change so fast. Um, so many routines have changed that the mind needs to work on all that stuff and can't really, doesn't have those like resting points. And for kids, this is really magnified with all of the changes to their school life. Um, But the thing is, parents and caregivers can do a lot to mitigate that. Like as adults, you know, we're we're absorbing everything. And, um, you know, we have to set our own boundaries. Where do we build our routines? How do we limit our news media? In what ways do we stay informed, but also, you know, be able to regulate our capacity to take in information? Like there's all these choices we make as adults that impact how we process all this change um, and fear and information. For kids, their experiences are radically different from each other depending on how their grown-ups are doing. You know, so so the grown-ups in the situation have a huge capacity to um, put boundaries around children's experiences right now in ways that can be helpful. Um, but also, of course, the harder of a time you're having as an adult, <laughs> the more challenging it is to um, sort of create that safer space for the kids in your life. 
So can you give me like, I, and I, I, I get you and I follow and I'd love to hear like an example, like something of uh, something that a parent can do, you know, to help really set that boundary on the experience, given, you know, the time where, you know, given where we're at in the world. Yeah. So it's such a good question. And it's, of course, varies so much because families are so different um, and caregivers have such different responsibilities and challenges themselves. Um, But I think one of the things that can be really helpful for kids right now um, is looking at basically two factors. And, you know, I talk up a lot and teach a lot on anxiety in my work. Um, And one of the core um, understandings about anxiety that I've come to, you know, over these years with children, especially, is that there are two things that really magnify anxiety. And one is overstimulation and the other is disconnection. Um, And I I was mentioning earlier, you know, this kind of like routine and predictability. um, And I find that with kids, a lack of routines um, leads to overstimulation really quickly. So, you know, when for my kids, my own children and my clients, when anxiety is rising, when kids are getting overwhelmed, I'm always asking, how do I reduce stimulation and how do I increase connection? Um, and in the immediate short term, the, the reducing stimulation might be things like, um, you know, seeing where you can turn down the volume on life. You know, maybe it's a little less tech, um, a little um, a little bit of contained spaces. My kids really benefit from small spaces. It sounds funny, but we have a, a room in our house where we just took the door off a closet and made it like a little cozy corner. And when the kids are in there, there's less even visual stimulation because they're in a small space. So the nervous system can take a break. It doesn't have to take in so much input, you know, and and adding touchstones of routine. And I think sometimes parents and caregivers get overwhelmed with the idea of routine when there's, when kids are home from school and there are so many, um, you know, they get kind of stuck on like, okay, do we need to be in a rigid routine every day? I don't think so. I find my kids really benefit from um, simple things like every Monday night, we have a pizza Monday. And it's just one of those things that kind of like every Monday night, the world feels normal. We do the exact same thing. Like my husband makes pizza. (laughs) We sit in front of the TV and we watch a kid's cooking show, Top Chef Junior or something like that. And it's just, it happens every week and it's a reset for them. And it's a reminder that there are some things um, that are solid and it lets them rest in it a bit. And I find if we miss pizza Monday, it's like the entire family is a little out of whack <laughs> until the next <laughs> one, you know, so it doesn't have to be this really complicated routine. It can just be like these things that provide anchor points in their week. Um, and the more those things can help them connect with their important grownups, um, the better, you know. So if those touch points of routine are also opportunities to connect, um, that's really important. I think when we think about connecting in terms of reducing um, kids' overwhelm and anxiety, sometimes we focus too much on talking with our kids, um, but our kids really need opportunities to connect where they don't need to like explain themselves. They don't even need to understand what's going on for themselves. They just need um, to feel. Um, like they're not in it alone. So finding ways to connect without a lot of talking is really important. 
Pizza really does solve everything is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm lucky. I get homemade pizza every Monday. So I don't know. I guess it depends on the pizza. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, me too. I put it in the oven from the frozen section. It's, it's homemade. It's not delivered. <laughs> it's, it, it, like, you know, a lot of what you say, I think about, you know, like my, my own personal experience with even having a cozy corner. I was in a small studio apartment for most of this pandemic that was like 425 square feet i actually felt like i was going insane because i was having to live work mm-hmm. eat sleep like everything in this small little 12 by 12 room with you know mm-hmm. a detached bathroom and a detached mini kitchen it was it was too small but in my newer space i have you know a, a, an area downstairs where you know i sit and I, like where i do my podcast at and then i can practice and i can do yoga downstairs and then my upstairs you know kind of little nook or my that is my resting area where it's completely mm-hmm. different. It's a sanctuary. Laptops aren't allowed up there. The phone, you know, is only allowed up there until an hour before bed. And then I go and I plug it in away from the area. So it's a very, like you said, it's a very cozy nook where, you know, my nervous system does get to decompress. Um, and, com- you know, I, I, under- coming from someone that does have generalized anxiety disorder, which I think a lot of us, probably have a decent amount of things or we do now anyway <laughs> we definitely do now it is it is a great way to just um like you said it, it is a great way to turn all of that stimulus off and to you know disconnect especially as an adult who runs a business online you know yeah. <laughs> who, is, who is always you know having a ding or an email or a ping or a message or a this or a that or you respond and there's a you know what i mean there's just like mm-hmm. that endless there's that endless cycle of um of uh, of notifications and you know having to having to it's it's funny you would think you know online like well where do you have to be you know but you there, there's so many calls and meetings you're it's it's, it's a yeah. little too much it's where your mind but. has to be right it's where your mind has to be and every time you get more input through your senses your mind loses the opportunity to sort of integrate the information that it's mm-hmm. already received and mm-hmm. and if we don't have that integration time um then we get overwhelmed and anxious because the the protective part of our brain doesn't really know if we're safe or not. You know, we're always, that protective part of the brain is always using our senses to gather information, mostly to answer that question, am I safe? And if the information is coming at us so quickly that we can't really integrate it and make sense of it, um, then we can never really let our guard down. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, uh, let's get let's get a little more into your work specifically. Sure. Yeah, let's. Uh, so I know it, it, a lot of it is 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 obviously with children, um, mm-hmm. and you know, you've you've created little flower yoga, and I'm sure you, you can you know kind of speak to that a little bit more. But yeah. it, a lot of this, what people. I think what people don't understand, maybe we can connect the dots there. Some of the stuff that we go through as adults is because of childhood anxiety. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I would say, you know, sometimes people ask me the question, like, what have you learned over, you know, all these years of working with kids? And really, I think one of my biggest takeaways is that pretty much adults need exactly what kids need. Um, And, you know, every time I teach um, children's programming, every time I teach a training, every time I teach a workshop on how to share yoga and mindfulness with kids, what I get from the adults all the time is, oh God, this is exactly what I need. And mm-hmm. that's oftentimes because we didn't get those things as a kid and we're still right. trying to um, you know, put those pieces together for ourselves. 
Um, and there are things that we need to feel as a kid in order to be attuned to, in order to, um, well, let me see. There are things that are optimal to get as a child that help us most fully feel free to be ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Kids, um, their sense of safety is largely dependent on how the grownups around them see them. So, you know, if they don't feel seen, if they don't feel affirmed and attuned to in their relationships with their most important grownups, um, safety sort of dictates that they figure out how to make their grownups like them more, how to make mm-hmm. the grownups see them, right? So when, when we spend our childhood doing that, it, it kind of takes away our capacity to really get to know ourselves and, we do that as a kid for safety, um, but then what gets sacrificed often is our authenticity. And as a grown-up, we kind of feel that, but sometimes we don't know it in our minds until we start getting access to practices like yoga and mindfulness and, and getting access to therapy and you know, really um, working that out. But I find even when we don't intellectually know it, so many of us are needing the same things that would have helped us in childhood to just be our most um, full version of ourselves. What are some of the things that you, uh, you know, when, when parents are saying to you, yeah, wow, I wish I, I could have used that too. What are some of the, what, I guess, what are the top three things that you hear when you start to share about your work? Oh my gosh. Well, the, the first thing I think that comes to my mind is, um, the acceptance of emotion um, without trying to fix or change the situation. Um, this comes up day after day. Um, and it's it's been interesting during the pandemic. Um, pre-pandemic, most of my work with adults was, has been with educators and mental health care providers and training them to work with kids. Now during the pandemic, I've had so many more opportunities to work directly with parents. Um, and this came from educators and clinicians, but from parents, it's like tenfold magnified is just this sort of longing to be able to have our own feelings, especially the trickier ones, um, in the presence of another person without having to manage that other person's discomfort, you know, without Mm. having to, um, without having to kind of be on guard? Am I being too upset? Is it making this person uncomfortable? Or are they trying to change it? And then if I act this way, they'll think I'm not listening to them. You know, there's all these things that happen when we have big feelings in front of another person that have nothing to do with us, right? And have everything to do with like how we're trying to regulate the interaction with the other person. Um, And that's something that I really focus on in my work with kids and, and in my work with caregivers is like, how can we as adults regulate ourselves and our own nervous system and our own emotional state enough to actually be able to be present to a child's (laughs) uncomfortable emotions without getting all sorts of caught up in them. Um, And parents just are like, oh my God, like I, I still need that. I never had that. You know, I never, I never had that, you know, and, and then the other things, I mean, that's, that's the biggest. And I almost feel like everything else grows off of that yeah, right for it, sure it, it, yeah yeah and and you know i can give other examples and other thoughts but at the core of it is like can i be myself in the presence of another person and trust that that person is okay with my messiness 
And, and that, that requires that level of awareness, right? Yeah. It requires yeah. that level of like tuning. <laughs> That's like some serious ninja, ninja, ninja <laughs> emotional intelligence. <laughs> well, that's why some have- people say that parenting is like the greatest mindfulness journey, the greatest spiritual journey you'll ever go on, right? Because kids just like bring out every single bit of, um, of whatever's inside you, you know? So as yeah. they, they provoke every emotion, <laughs> they provoke every emotion, they test every boundary. Um, they do things that remind you of your own childhood. I mean, they push the button on every trigger you've got, you know? So if, if you are committed to a sort of intentional, um, aware, you know, mindful approach to parenting where you're really um, interested in doing that work of self-reflection it can get overwhelming kind of quick because, um, you know, you've got this sort of like constant spiritual teacher, like running around in your house, testing you yeah. at every moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, like something that I've, I've learned recently as an adult, you know, there, there's this difference between discernment and judgment, right? Where mm-hmm. one of them is like coming from a place of, of not authenticity, um, and, and, you know, let's get really clear. Like we're not meaning the word, like, can you just be like really authentic and da, da, da. but truly like when you're acting from a place of self versus mm-hmm. a place of like uh, reaction or, um, you know, uh, not being present, I guess is a great way to say it. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I had this, this conflict recently where I was asking someone to do something and they weren't understanding what I was having them do. And so I was like, well, no, like try it this way. And they didn't, they didn't understand it still. And then they came back defensively and they're like, okay, Sergeant, you know, like, Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, I'm trying to do it this way. And I kept pushing for like, no, no, no. Like I'm asking you to do it this way. I'm asking you to do it this way. And finally we like got, you know, through the, the communication and like the thing ended up happening. And the observation was, Oh, wait a minute, you know, from, from a friend who is super ninja in in emotional intelligence, I call him, um, but pausing that situation and being like, Oh, wait, I see that you are confused and let's address the confusion first and how that's going Mm -hmm. and how that's feeling and where you're at with that. Okay, cool. Once we've addressed that, now we can move forward with where, where is the confusion and you know, what part of, uh, what part, what part of my communication isn't working and where can we get it to a place where it can work? Yeah. It's so important. Like like that sort of capacity to stop and backtrack. Like we, you know, we, when you're in those situations, whether it's with a kid or another adult, you know, when you, when everybody's emotions start getting bigger and people start acting like you're saying defensive or, um, you know, challenging in a way that like makes it clear, like somebody doesn't feel safe here, (laughs) you know, like that sort of whenever I I always think like whenever there's this block to our capacity to communicate, um, this sort of, um, inability to show up like fully and hear each other, it's usually because someone or both people are trying to keep themselves safe. And if you feel you have to try to keep yourself safe, it kind of, takes away the possibility for true connection mm-hmm. and that should really be the goal of communication right so it you know it's always important um, and it, it comes up especially in work with kids and especially kids who've experienced trauma it, which so many have is like if you get to an impasse or things seem edgy 
that reminder of like somebody in this situation is trying to stay safe right. can diffuse a lot of the judgment and then you can can step back and unwind it. I feel like I need to pay you for our session today because I feel like I'm getting so much. <laughs> I'm having this moment of like, oh, shit. <laughs> uh, see, all the grownups need the same thing. <laughs> well, that's the end of our episode. We'll talk to you later. I got to go by. <laughs> no, but, but Jen, you know, you're, go Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no. I was just going to say it's, it's just so fundamental. Like the things that kids need are the things that adults need, especially when we're in those moments of like, I don't feel seen. I don't feel safe. I don't feel um, like I belong in this situation. We go right back to the way we felt as kids. Okay. So I have, I have, a, I have another question for you here. Like, you know, I, I think about, <clears throat> I had a really hard time for a while with this, the, uh, there's a lot of, there's a shift in language in, 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 in the way that we're moving forward as a society. I think there's a lot of talk of more safe space and, and what that actually means mm-hmm. and holding the container and the capacity and trauma and so on and so forth. And I had a really hard time with it. I actually pushed it away because I felt like it was a, sometimes it can almost, for me, this is my experience. So I want to, first I wanted to say that this is my experience. It doesn't have to be anybody else's. You don't have to agree with it. I'm all right. Um, what I, what I, what it felt like at times was like this giant woke battle. Does that make sense? Like it was like, yeah, I understand. so, So many people had this language, this language, this language, and it was almost weaponized. Like if you didn't understand it, then you weren't, you know, I just didn't feel, it didn't feel safe. It didn't mm-hmm. feel safe that I didn't understand it. It didn't feel safe that I didn't get it. It didn't feel safe that the way that it was brought up for me in my experience of it wasn't an actual like in intellect like hey let's 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 introduce you to this stuff because this is where we're moving but more so like you don't understand this how does that make sense and so i really i mean my my experience is completely different um but my i think my experience was probably more unusual than yours i think your experience is really common and it's important that we understand it um, as a society and also as a field, or we're not going to be able to <laughs> move forward in connection. It's going to be everybody right. feeling, you know, judged and running away. A hundred percent. And that's what it felt like. It wasn't until, you know, afterwards where I actually had another friend who we got in a conversation and this friend was very much like, are you okay? Like, do you feel, do you feel all right right now? And I, and I was like, you know, yeah. And he just picked up and he's like, okay, so this, you know, it, it, my observation is this could be a little defensive, which tells me like, are you confused? And I said, yeah, actually, I just don't get this. Yeah. And he's so like, it just, you know, two hours later down the rabbit hole, I got to understand the language of safe and, mm-hmm. you know, everything. And, and I got it. And I actually felt like a better human because of it. Like, oh my God, these are things that I'd been feeling for so long or, you know, that I was trying to get to and I didn't have the language or the understanding. Mm -hmm. And now that I did, it was like, it blew my mind when I got there in that two hour conversation. And it also made so much like, like it course corrected so many, you know, like, I guess let's yoga this. It course corrected some of the stem scars, some of the thought patterns that I just kept, you know, digging that groove deeper and deeper. I could feel course correcting because I had the understanding of the language. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
It definitely does. And I think it's really important, you know, that you, you know, for, for people to be able to recognize that and really um, sort of dig into making sense of an experience like that, because guaranteed it's going to happen again. Right. So like for you, I don't know what your background is or where you're at in, in, you know, teaching and the way that you work with trauma. Like, I don't know any of that, but knowing how the world goes, right? Things are going to keep evolving. And as a, a community, we keep learning more and almost inevitably language changes and evolves. And um, we realize ways that we've been contributing to doing harm that we weren't aware of, even if we've already become aware of like 20 ways and worked on it. And, you know, like there, there's still more, right? So like every time we have an experience like you're talking about and can sort of remind our mind um, that discomfort probably means you're feeling judged or uncomfortable and unhappy um, and less confident. Like every time you can um, feel those emotions and let it be a reminder, oh, this means there might be something to learn here. This means there might be something I don't understand. And I want to get curious about that, right? If we can allow discomfort to prompt curiosity instead of defensiveness, then we don't have to like be that little kid on the outside of the cool club, you know? And I, and I think that feeling is so like, it's so deep in so many people because we just, we don't live in a culture that really affirms children, like as a, as a collective, right. There's a lot of variation in that, but the, the structures of our society, like the structures of schooling and testing and like the, the, the foundational structures of our culture and our society don't actually embrace um, and affirm children's like full humanity most of the time. So right. collectively, right. Many of us, um, really are so deeply yearning for belonging that feeling excluded because of what we don't know, like sends us fleeing to some other group of people that will take us in and understand us. And that's really, really hard um, on a healing field, you know, on a, a field and a community that's working towards um you know, acceptance and non-judgment and yeah. connection. I mean, to me, yoga, um, the entire goal of my work is deeper connection with oneself and others. And anything that sends us running away from each other, you know, gets in the way of that. At the same time, we live in a society and a structure where like the experience you had, um, you know, sometimes people who've experienced certain types of traumas, like, <laughs> In order to be heard, you have to make people so deeply uncomfortable that they actually have a reason to listen. And it's a paradox because it can push people away, but at the same time, it's so um, it's so frustrating in so many cases that these um, these injuries, these harms that have been done, have been so overlooked. Um, and perpetuated in spaces that are supposed to be welcoming healing spaces that it, it almost is impossible to be um, soft and subtle about it, right? Because it's yeah. just, it's not taken seriously. So, you know, for me, my experience was so different. The first place I ever taught yoga was in a domestic violence shelter. First, first place. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you, my, you went there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. my entire trajectory, I mean, it, because for me, I didn't, um, I didn't come to yoga and say, I want to teach yoga and then go out and find, I, I was already working, um, with children and with, um, you know, with folks who'd experienced trauma. I, I came to yoga because I was looking for ways to help myself and, and people I was working with and connected with, um, heal, heal for, in a way that was embodied, right? Because yeah. trauma is such an embodied experience. And, you know, when you talk about creating um, a safer space and, and helping people find safety, one of the first things that I think about is like a sense of safety in one's own body. Because for so many people, sensation in the body is in and of itself frightening um, on a on a gut level, on a, on a core like nervous system level. Um, so I kind of came to yoga through the people I was already working with, um, right. not the other way around. So for me, right. that sort of those sorts of considerations were always at the forefront. Um, and then I got very very fortunate early on in my work to. Um, I, I was a founding member of the Yoga Service Council and very, very involved with that organization for more than a decade. Um, so I really grew up <laughs> um, fully embedded in sort of the most um, the most provocative um, questioning environment around this intersection of um, these these. Um, historic practices and these healing practices um, intersecting with our with social justice concerns and with the the medical and mental health professions like all of that intersecting that's where I lived for like the entire first decade of my career mm -hmm. yeah you were you were totally in the work but it, it you know one of the things at the Yoga Service Council that we really took to heart and tried to do in our conferences over the years and in all of the work that we did and, and put forward in the world was um, trying to create learning environments and, and conversation environments that were not um, exclusionary and really um, didn't to create the type of experience you're talking about where somebody yeah. who you know wants to understand feels unwelcome. Um, but it's, you know, we had many situations arise where people did feel extremely challenged and provoked. The, the you know, the kicker, the key is not to let go at that moment, right? To like right. stay totally. with it yeah. um, and, and commit to moving forward even from that really, you know, defensive situation. Something so um, something so cool and simple, and I, I want to share this um, and, and talk a, a little bit about this. But you know, you you wrote a children's book. I think it should be an, an adult's book. <laughs> yeah, I've written a few, and, and that's kind of and the, the feedback I get. <laughs> I I know a few people, uh, me myself, I. <laughs> That could really benefit from your children's book. It's totally an adult book, you guys. It should be. But you wrote a book called Thank You, Mind. Yeah. Uh, Mind, understanding uh, my big feelings on tricky days. Yep. I'm really proud of it.
You should be. I mean, it's it's first off, it's adorable and it's super cute. So great job. But I mean, you you're literally speaking to all of our inner child and to the children that are out there. Tell us about the book. And you know, I know this is a combination of it's really everything that you, we just got to you know in in this conversation. Um, but written as a book for for children. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this is my second children's book and I have some other books for adults and some card decks and, you know, but I wrote um, this, I wrote a book called Thank You Body, Thank You Heart last year that was really um, a gratitude based body scan for kids. And I wanted to put a practice in a book. And I, I mentioned I have two daughters, a three year old and an eight year old. And, you know, the things that stick for kids often are um, rooted in the things that become rituals and books that they love get read over and over and over again. So I was really thinking about, you know, how can I speak directly to kids in a way that will like embed in them that will will stick. And so the idea of writing children's books was, you know, very natural for me. And then I was asking myself, like, okay, like, what are the books I actually like to read to my kids that aren't going to drive me crazy? And, you know, I, I realized, like, I really like to read rhyming books. And also, like, when books rhyme, kids remember them. Um, so right, I, I totally, started yeah. writing these books all in this rhyming cadence. And they're really meant to be, like, practices in a book. And thank you, Mind. Um came about because I noticed really my own kids, um, especially my older daughter, like speaking so harshly to herself. And, you know, many of the kids that I work with and the families that I'm connected with, it's just shocking when you slow down and watch and listen to realize how hard kids are on themselves. And, you know, we all have this inner voice that can be a friend or can be a critic. Um, but so many of the adults in their lives, I think, are have like these strong inner critics that that's just what the kids are picking up on. Um, mm-hmm. And the book was really meant to counter that. So it goes sort of step by step through um, examples of all different emotions, like difficult ones and positive ones. So I look at like anger and jealousy and grief, but also excitement and awe and um, joy and looks at how we can use our inner voice and things like self-talk and self-compassion and acceptance and reframing, uh, perspective taking to um, really be better friend to ourselves um, and experience all our emotions as just human information. <laughs> um, and it's um, it's a very simple book, um, but it's got these like very strong um, reminders about how we can be with different types of emotions in ways that really build our resilience, um, build our self-compassion and self-acceptance, and also allow us to have these like really deep dives into joyfulness, you know, that remind us of ways to slow down and kind of take in the good and, um, you know, allow our, our brain, our mind, our body to feel awe and joy and excitement, like fully and not rush past it. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where the book came from. And, you know, when I, I wrote the dedication of the book and I'm, I don't remember it word for word, I'm going to mess it up, you know, but I really, when I dedicated the book, I, I wanted to, um, 
write a dedication that was for kids and adults. And, you know, the idea in the dedication was that the book was written for any kid who ever felt like they had to make their feelings smaller. Um, and for every grown up still working to be a good friend to themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. It's something that, you know, speaks to, to, to me a lot is, you know, like, how do we be our own best friend for a bit? You know, mm -hmm. how do we hold, how do we hold that space? And I, I use the reference a lot of like, it's your best friend and they're calling you and they need you. And how do you show up? And for me, it's like, it's attention, it's kindness, it's compassion, it's fierce, right? If they're mm -hmm. slipping up, I'm going to make sure that I call them on that, you know, a call yeah. in versus a call out. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's so important um, because I think sometimes um, as adults, we, um, this could, you know, this is just my, my sense on it. Um, not that we forget, but we get so caught up in adulting. You know, we get mm -hmm. caught up in the job, we get caught up in the house, we get caught up in this, this, and this, that we forget to maintain um, some of the most important stuff. And sometimes all the adulting can be a distraction from the maintenance of that inner child, from that inner self. And I, I, I really do see, you know, in, 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 in my eyes, the world is changing a lot. The conversations that are being held a lot, uh, that are being held are a lot different than they were before. The conversations in yoga um, are being mm -hmm. held um, a lot different. And so I just think that this, you know, this work that you're offering is, is not only for kids, but this is something that adults, you know, have a really beautiful opportunity to check in and, and, uh, and nurture themselves with. Yeah. Thank you. I, you know, and, and it's points, you know, what you're saying really, it points to and reminds us like the, the work that I do is often for kids, but there is no separating the fact that the best thing we can do for our kids, whether it's as caregivers, as educators, as mental health care providers, coaches, right? The best thing we can do is give them good examples of aware, compassionate, loving kindness. And, you know, how we treat ourselves is how kids think people are supposed to treat themselves. You know, so when we talk about doing this work to help kids, it's just confusing if we tell them, you know, do this for yourself, but then they see us not doing that for ourselves, you know, so being consistent in our um, teaching means finding ways to model self-compassion. And, you know, it's not just about self-esteem and I'm great. Like it's, it's almost like um, compassionate accountability. You know, how can I um, be that loving friend to myself? How can I treat myself kindly? How can I speak kindly to myself? But also how can I keep my curiosity about my own um, challenges? How can I remember the context and my own perspective and keep learning? And, and how can I um, hold myself lovingly accountable when I mess up, you know, when I make mistakes, when I hurt people? And I think a lot of us are stuck in this place where we either um, get really down on ourselves when we make a mistake or mess up or hurt someone. We really like berate ourselves or we get super defensive and kind of, you know, just move away from the situation completely. And both of those are really teaching kids the opposite of what we're going for. But if that's how we treat ourselves, that's how we're teaching them to treat themselves. So important, such like, you know, I think a lot about just having these conversations in general and how, 
you know, the more that we get to have these conversations and air these conversations, maybe it might give one or a second or a third person permission to do the same with them in their circle. And, you know, I, I just, I think it's, I think it's beautiful. It's brilliant. And, uh, and I think it should, it should be a required book for everyone before you get, before you get a driver's license or anything, you got to read this book. You know, it rhymes so we can make people memorize. It. <laughs> totally, totally. Before you take a teacher training, it is, it is the Bhagavad Gita is the second required reading to this. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, uh, We've got a lot of capacity to um, to make sense of our own experiences, but it's yeah. very hard to do yeah. that when we're really overwhelmed and we're when we're taking in so much and not giving ourselves any spaces yeah. um, for you know settling and reflecting. Um, you know the the reflection piece is so important, like self reflection, reflection on the situation. But when we're like a million miles an hour, go go go, we never have the opportunity to reflect, and that's when people get stuck. I feel it, Jen. Thank you for. Uh, I mean, thank you for one creating this space to educate us and to you know, help us understand a little more about emotions and how they work. Not only, I know the work is for kids, but literally this is the best cut. Like I know most adults I know could are, are going to benefit from this conversation. So thank you for creating the container for us to have this conversation and to educate this on us and, and to really empower more people to, to, to go there. And um, yeah, I just appreciate all of your work and everything that you're doing and your, your, uh, your, bright light in the world that's important thank you oh, thank you so much those are really kind words and i appreciate you having me on the show until the next seeker and sage this is danny and jen saying peace out peace out